You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. This morning, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be reading first in Korean and then in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. It's a glimpse into eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around God's throne worshiping Him together. 하나님의 말씀은 살아있고 활동력이 있어서 양쪽의 날이 선그 어떤 칼보다도 더 날카롭습니다. 그래서 혼과 영과 관절과 골수를 쫓게고 사람의 마음 속에 품은 생각과 뜻을 알아냅니다. 하나님 앞에서는 아무것도 숨길 수가 없습니다. 우리가 모든 것을 고백해야 할 그분의 눈 앞에서는 모든 것이 벌거숭이로 드러나기 마련입니다. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. So the Christian faith claims that we hear from God. You ever just stop to think about the magnitude of a claim like that? We hear from God. Or consider the magnitude of the claim that the author of Hebrews begins with in chapter 1, that God who has spoken in various ways in the past, today has spoken to us. God speaks and we have heard him. To some people in our lives, this is going to seem a little bit arrogant. To other people in our lives, this is going to seem presumptuous, maybe even a bit ridiculous. Okay, sure, you hear from God. A 20th century psychiatrist once said, if you talk to God, you are praying. If God talks to you, you have schizophrenia. Frederick Nietzsche once told the parable of a person who was seeking after God. He described him as a madman who lit a lantern in midday light, one who was mocked by all the town's people. In fact, some may even say that those who claim to hear from God are what's wrong with the world today. That kind of confidence is harmful to society. Those who say and claim to know the truth are, those are the people that cause wars and hatred. Religion is the biggest problem humanity faces. Narrow claims of truth are destructive and so on. I'm sure we've all heard various statements like this. But let's consider this from a different angle. How presumptuous, how absurd, and even how destructive would it be to attempt to live your life without hearing from God? I don't know about you and I can't speak for you, but I know what it's like to try to figure out my life on my own. I know firsthand the pain and the confusion, and the pain to other people, and the total chaos of a life trying to figure out my life on my own. Thinking I know what's best. Thinking that the ultimate truth is my truth. I know the pain and the fallout of that attempt. 
Bruce Wacke once said, it was God who created humanity. And if you believe that, that's our starting point, then, therefore, only God can reveal to us our identity and function as humans. If God made us, it's his to define. Without this biblical revelation, we are lost in a maze of confusion. So far from being arrogant... Christianity is actually the humility to admit that we can't know who we are. The humility to acknowledge that we don't know what life ought to look like and how we're supposed to relate to others and the world around us apart from God. Our creator graciously revealing it to us. Christian faith says, I'm not wise enough to figure this out. The good news of Hebrews is that God has spoken, and we have heard him through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, which we will celebrate in the Advent season beginning next Sunday, and his written word, which is the scriptures, which is how we come to know this Jesus. So, I don't mean this facetiously, do you want to hear from God today? Then hear his word. You want to hear God speak audibly to you? Read it out loud. Study in community. Commit your life to sitting under the preaching of God's word weekly. God has spoken. The question is, are we going to listen? Our passage in Hebrews is telling us some really important things about this word. Descriptions that I hope stir your hunger for God's word and give you a greater understanding of just how much you need to hear from God. So let's, let's look at this passage again, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you're taking notes, here's where we're going to begin today. Number one, the word is personal. The word is personal. It is easy for us to treat the Bible like it's just another piece of ancient literature that we maybe respect, and it's timeless and it's important, or maybe it's something that we will go to from time to time for a little bit of direction in our lives. When I was growing up, it, it was very common to hear this phrase, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Maybe sadly you have said that in your life. I have so many problems with this statement, but we're told here that far more than just basic instructions, the word is living. It is alive. Okay, so how? Well, we're told elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God. So the same animating breath that breathed into Adam at creation and gave him life is now breathing into us through his word. And since the Bible is empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit, when we engage the word, we are engaging the living God. We are engaging the living God, which is, by the way, the goal. It's the goal of all of this, to discern God's will 
so that we can enjoy him and honor him with all of our life. As Michael Michael Kruger put it, it's through God's word that we meet him, learn from him, and have fellowship with him. It's through the word. So the Bible is so much more than just basic principles. It is about a person. It's about knowing this person. Dick Lucas, who was the past, a pastor in London years ago, once said that in the Bible, God does not give us necessarily watertight arguments so much as the Bible offers us a watertight person against whom in the end there can be no argument. So if you're obsessed with finding watertight arguments in the scriptures, you're going to miss the point because the Bible presents a watertight person known as Jesus in whom there are no arguments. This is life and life defined. Now, this is where the breakdown happens for us. This is the challenge for a lot of people because we treat the Bible as a collection of theories to either prove if you're an apologist or disprove if you're an antagonist. We spend all of our time trying to prove it or disprove it as if it's a set of ideas simply or as if it's a set of principles for us to master. Or some of us treat the Bible like a magic eight ball. Remember those as a kid? We're gonna approach the Bible with all of my life's most complex questions. I'm gonna shake it and turn it upside down and get the answer that I need. Who am I supposed to marry? You shake it and you turn it upside down. Concentrate and ask again. You're like, what does that even mean? And am I gonna, am I gonna be a successful person? Am I gonna be a person of faith till the, till the day I die? You shake it, you turn it over. Very doubtful. Okay, well, this, this is not helpful. And I know from experience that even lifelong students of the Bible, we can seek to know about God more than we seek to know God personally. What we do is, we, this is the default mode, especially in evangelicalism, where we hold intellectualism in high regard, we, we pursue ideas about God instead of enjoying intimacy with him. I have been guilty of this, pursuing knowledge about God. I want to know all the things about God, and I missed the point. The Bible is inviting me to relate to him, to commune with him. Jesus would condemn the religious leaders of his time with these words in John chapter 5. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have life. I don't exist, Jesus says, I don't exist for the Bible. The Bible exists for me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We encounter the living God through the living word. And it's personal. And the scriptures are inviting us to relate to Jesus personally. And do not, friend, settle for anything less. Amen? Amen. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the word is powerful. The Bible is described as being active. In the original language, the word is energase. It's where we get the word energy, energized. God's word isn't just talk. 
It's not just empty words, it's action. God's word is actively doing something. It is creating, it is forming, it is raising, it is building, it is renewing. Where the word goes, things change. Isaiah chapter 55 says this. God says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is accomplishing things that cannot be thwarted. God's word going forth is doing things in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our community, in our world that we couldn't stop if we tried it to. So if we retrace the scriptures, what we see is that God's actions and his words are often found hand in hand. All the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And there was, and so on. God spoke, God spoke, God said, God commanded. Or when the prophet Ezekiel, for instance, saw the famous valley of dry bones, and God says, I'm going to raise this valley of dry bones to life again. It's interesting because God doesn't say, watch this, snap his finger and, and they raise. Nor does he tell Ezekiel, all right, well, here's what I want you to do. Go assemble them, get them in place, do, you know, put them all together, and then they'll come back to life again. No, he says, speak to them. Not weird. Speak over them. Prophesy to them. Proclaim my word over dead things in order to bring them back to life. Why? Because there's power in God's message. Or for instance, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus' friend Lazarus has died and he's dead and been buried for four days. And everyone, including the family, is there mourning at the tomb. It says Jesus comes to the tomb, and we read this in John chapter 11. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the same commanding voice that speaks the universe into being, who raised a dead man to life with a simple command, is now speaking to us. Are we willing to receive that? That's the claim. That's the hurdle you got to get over today. But that's the claim of Christianity. That same world-altering voice is now speaking to you. Now, before Stranger Things, the Hellfire Club was actually the name of a group of young men in Bristol, England in the 1700s. And they hated the things of Christianity particularly hated revivalist preachers at the time. And what they would do is they would assemble where revival meetings were happening and try to disrupt these meetings. 
They would try everything they could do to try to, to stop them and stop these preachers from preaching Christ. One day, one young man named Thorpe, <laughs> so fitting, Thorpe, uh, he gets a hold of one of the preacher's sermon notes, thinking he's going to be funny, goes back to the pub where the boys are, stands up on a chair and begins to mock this preacher, pretending to be him, reading from his sermon notes. And the story goes that the Spirit of God gripped his heart, he got silent, he sat down convinced, and at that moment, confessed Christ. He meant to mock Christianity, and he accidentally converted. How? Because the word is active, it's powerful, it's energy. And it's greater than our greatest doubts. And God's word is stronger than our strongest hesitations. And here's a word for our tired culture. It's more energy than our lethargy. It's powerful. Jeremiah 23 describes the word, here's hand motions for you, as a fire and a hammer. Can you do that? Fire? Come on. And a hammer. It melts and it breaks apart and nothing can withstand it. So let me ask you a question, personal question. How could we imagine our lives ever being changed by God apart from the word of God? Let me ask that again. How could we ever imagine our lives ever being changed by God apart from the powerful word of God? So for those today and I know you're here, who are just not really all that interested in the Bible. Or for those who think that they are, and I know you're here too, beyond the need for the Bible. Oh, I've read that. I'm familiar with the stories. I'm, I'm beyond that in my faith. Or for those who say that they're too busy to spend time in the Bible. Wherever you are, whatever your excuse, what exactly are you expecting to happen to you? What are your expectations? What are your expectations for change? What are your expectations for transformation? Now, don't get me wrong, you're gonna change. We're all changing whether we like it or not. The question is, what kind of change are we experiencing? N.T. Wright put it this way, where no attention is given to teaching and constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence and memory. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of Western evangelicalism today. So, some influence is shaping your life right now. The question is, which one? What is shaping your mind? What is shaping your thinking? Here's a good one. What is shaping your imagination about what the good life is? If, and this is the big if you need to wrestle with today. If you desire a life of daily growth in Christ, then it's going to require you getting into the word daily. And do not receive the myth the deception of the enemy that would tell you, oh, that's legalism. That is baloney. 
baloney. If you desire a life of daily growth in Christ, it's gonna require that you are in the word of God daily. Just as we require daily food to live and flourish, so we require consistent daily exposure to the living, active word of God. Jesus himself said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I suspect you're hungry today. I suspect you are hungry and you are feeding your soul something. Feast on the word. Christian, I want to address those who have put, put their faith in Christ already. Christian, prioritize your life around the transformative word of God. Prioritize your life around this. As you walk out today, what you're going to find on the little booth as you walk into the Westminster Hall is this little guide called spiritual, or the guide to spiritual formation. We put this together to help you to read your Bible daily, help you engage it and pray through it. If you, if you don't know where to start, if you struggle to engage the Bible, please pick up a free copy of this on your way out today. For those who are seeking, and I hope that there are those today who are seeking, who don't know where they land in faith. They're kind of on the fence about the things of Jesus. We're really glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're here. For those who are wanting to know more about Jesus, everything that you seek to know about God, he's gonna to reveal to you in his word. Everything that you desire to know about him, he will reveal to you in his word. Now, I talk to a lot of people who are convinced that they've just got too much going on in their life to be in the word daily. I just have too many things, I have too many responsibilities, my life is spread too thin. My advice to you about a decade ago would have been different than what I would say to you today. Here's my advice to you. Start small, stick with it, increase over time, and watch what God can do in your life. Think about this, Jesus raised a dead man with three words. Lazarus, come out. Start small. I don't see anyone writing this down. Start small. I mean, this is, this is the nugget here, guys. Start small. Stick with it. Increase over time and see what God does in your life. See what God does in your life. Number three, if you're taking notes, the word is piercing. It's piercing. Now, it's entertaining to think about the word of God like this big, gnarly, massive, rugged sword that we wield. I'm in the Lord's army now, and the word of God is this big, rugged sword. But think about these words. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. So the author of Hebrews could be picturing in his mind a big military sword at this point. But I think it's more likely that, especially with this reference to joints and marrow, this seems more like a surgical knife. Surgical knife. And thought that way, when we think about it this way, it's really interesting because when God's word pierces us, when it cuts us, when it wounds us, and it will do that. I mean, you're doing it wrong if it doesn't hurt once in a while. But it's not like a wild, jagged sword that is tearing us Apart. It is like a surgeon's knife, and it's precise. It is not blunt. God is not haphazard. It's calm. It's intentional. It's focused. 
And it is only cutting away what is necessary in order to remove that which is fatal within us. And like a doctor, God is going to wound us so that he can heal us. The more that you resist God's wounding, the more that you will forfeit God's healing. The more that you resist God's wounds in your life, the more you will forfeit his healing in your life. I talk to a lot of people with such little tolerance for pain in their spirituality. Such little tolerance for discomfort in their Christian faith. With a disdain towards anything that's uncomfortable. With a disdain towards anything that's challenging and, and, and wounding. We, we, we consider triggering. So much so that they avoid ever being wounded. But like when it comes to our physical bodies, it is much better to be pierced by a surgeon than pampered by a mortician. And I'm telling you right now, I refuse to allow reality to ever be a place where dead, spiritually dead people are made to feel pretty. Spiritually speaking, these are our options. Wounded by the surgeon or pampered by a mortician. Yes, it cuts. Yes, it hurts sometimes. But it is always with the intent to heal us and make us whole. No sermons complete without a C.S. Lewis illustration. In um, the Chronicles of Narnia, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this, this boy named Eustace. No one likes Eustace, right? And he's so contentious, and he's unwilling to see the magic of Narnia. And not only is he unwilling to see the magic of Narnia, he tries to spoil it for all the rest of the boys and girls. And one night he falls asleep on a mound of enchanted gold, and it says that these greedy, dragonish thoughts were in his heart. When he woke up, he realized that he had, he had embodied the darkness that was within him. He had actually turned into the dragon that was within his heart all along. And so Eustace, desperate to try to become a boy again, begins to tear at his flesh, trying to peel these scales, these dragon scales from himself. Layer after layer, he finds that he is no less a dragon than when he began. No matter how much he tries, and I want to emphasize this point, no matter how much he tries, he cannot change himself. He can't. But then the lion, Aslan, who represents Jesus, he says, you're going to have to let me do that for you. And as Eustace is retelling the story, he says, quote, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt in my life. But then he says, I found that all my pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. Because I had turned into a boy again. I was alive again. So what if, what if all of the most difficult things that you've ever read in the Bible, all the most difficult things you've ever heard 
from the Bible, the things that you resist, the things that you hate hearing, the things that rub you so wrong, the things that clash against what our culture celebrates, the things that clash against what you think should be true, the things that the Bible tells you to do that you don't want to do that feels like death, like forgiving that person or loving your enemy, the things that the Bible tells you about you that you don't want to know about you, the things that Jesus tells you that you must deny in order to follow him, all of the most painful things. What if, what if it was for our good? What if it was for our healing? What if it was God's way of making you whole again? Through his word, God is cutting through your defenses deep into your heart. Why? In order to cut out what is fatal, carving out the sinful impulses, carving out the selfishness that is natural to all of us, carving out the false identities that you try to form your life around, carving out all the things that you think right now are so life-giving, but in the long run are poison to your soul. Carving out what brings death so that you can experience true life in him. What if? Fourth and finally, the word is perceptive. Verses 12 through 13, again, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this is making a very interesting statement here. The Bible is not just a book that you read. The Bible's a book that reads you. As we engage the Bible, it's not just you reading it, it's reading you. It's discerning you. So think about this medically. It's not just like a surgeon's knife. It's also like an x-ray. Or like a scan. Or like that machine at the airport, TSA. It sees everything about you. Whether you like it or not. It cuts through all of your pretense. It cuts through all of your layers. It cuts through all of the things that you try to clothe yourself with. It sees right through to the real you. You don't got to lie to kick it. Why? Because God sees you already. He sees you better than you. The Protestant reformers, they coined this term, the threefold use of the law. Important purposes for the commands of God found in scripture. And the first on the list is that God's word serves as a mirror to us. First, it reflects back God's perfection. When we see the commands of God, we see the moral uprightness of God. But secondly, it reflects back our own sinfulness, how much we fall short. It shows us things about ourselves that we don't want to admit about ourselves. So we may escape being fully known by the people in our lives. You may even successfully deceive yourself. But nothing escapes God fully Known, naked, and exposed. Exposed. Isn't that kind of a frightening word? It's a frightening word. I, I remember having a, um, a more vulnerable medical procedure. And I remember the, the doctor coming in. I thought, okay, this is typical. And then three 
assistance with him. I'm thinking to myself, do we all need to be here right now? I mean, I get you and maybe one helper, three assistants. So this is a student doctor here, and this is an intern, and this is the secretary. And we just found this person on the street coming in. Hey, everyone. But I've also been exposed relationally and spiritually. Maybe you have too. It's painful. It's painful. But what we need to remember is not only does God wound us to heal us, he exposes us in order to clothe us. Maybe you're familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent deceives. And really, it's interesting because the deceptions around the word of God, I don't think you can trust God's word. And when they sinned and rebelled against God, immediately they felt shame. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They tried to cover themselves. So they could not fathom in their mind a God that would both love them fully and know them fully. If he knew the true me, he wouldn't fully love me. So they covered themselves. And yet God comes to them and he calls them out of hiding. And what is he doing? He's exposing them. Come out here. But in exposing them, he then offers them better clothing. He removes the fig leaves and offers to them animal skins, which assumes a sacrifice, which is intended to point us forward in scriptures to the work of Jesus. The lamb that was slain, the sacrifice that was made on behalf of our sins. He removes the false self, that burdensome, that confusing self. He removes the pretense. He removes the facade that is weighing you down in your life right now in order to give you your true life. One that brings freedom and wholeness, a life that walks in the light So here's the point. It's once we've been exposed by the truth. It's once we've been undressed by God that we can then receive the better clothes. The Bible refers to this as the robes of righteousness. Clothed no longer in our pretense, the things that we do to cover ourselves, but now and forever clothed in the perfection of Jesus Christ. So that when God sees those who are hidden in Jesus, he doesn't see our flaws. He doesn't see our shame. He doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfection of Jesus, clothed in his righteousness. When the word shines the light on our sinfulness, it is uncomfortable and we're left feeling vulnerable. And the natural question is, is this necessary? And the answer is yes. Because it shows us our need for God. Not just for a little bit of direction in our lives. It shows us our need for deliverance. It shows us our ongoing need for the rescue and righteousness of Jesus applied to us through faith. The the author of of Romans, the apostle Paul would say this in Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law, the commands of God weakened by the flesh could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Jesus lived the life that we could not. And he died the death that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion. But on the third day, he rose again in power to conquer sin and to conquer death. And he gave to us the Holy Spirit who is now empowering us to live for him. Now with a new nature, now with new motivations, now with new affections that truly and naturally desire the things of God. I don't want to obey the, the Bible because I'm afraid of being punished. Now I want to obey the Bible because I enjoy Jesus. Because now, because of the Holy Spirit, is the most natural disposition of my heart. Through faith in Jesus, his obedience to the word becomes our obedience. His determination to live for the will of God becomes our determination. His love for the word becomes our love for the word. And what is true of him becomes forever true of us. Let this word, let the scriptures direct you not just to truth in general. Ideas, concepts, principles, direction. But let it lead you to the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, who came to give life and is active and moving even among us now. He has spoken. Are you going to listen? Are you going to listen? Let's pray. God, what a claim.